Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Carl Nellis, and today we're talking with Gail Ashton, an academic writer and poet formerly at the universities of Manchester and Birmingham, with research and publishing interests in medieval literature, popular culture, and poetry. Uh, today we're talking about a book that she's edited, Medieval Afterlives and Contemporary Culture, out from Bloomsbury Academic in 2015. Gail, welcome to the show. Hello, Carl. Lovely. Thank you so much for asking me. And if I may say, before we even start, it's actually also out in paperback next year. Yeah, so that will make it available to many more readers, we hope. Well, we hope so. I'm really excited to talk about this book because uh, this field is of really immense personal interest to me. Uh, I've done some academic work here, and there is such a wealth of, of knowledge and expertise and, and clear thinking and writing in this book. So I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Can we start by talking a little bit about your background and maybe leading up to what brought you to this field and then to this project? You can indeed. Um, I'm a, I have a fairly eclectic background. I'm not a traditional medievalist, um, which possibly therefore is no surprise uh, to an extent about where I've ended up, where I've ended up at. I describe in the introductions of this book in a little personal kind of memento that I'm an accidental medievalist. I won't bore you with full details of that, but I began life really as a school teacher, teaching English and drama after taking an English degree. Mm. And so my postgraduate work came sort of nine or ten years after um, teaching when, not quite on a whim, but almost, I decided to go and take some postgraduate study. And the bizarre thing is, because of work time commitments, I, here's the accidental medievalist bit, all of the contemporary courses, which is where my interest actually lay in contemporary mm-hmm. literature and popular culture, um, I was not allowed out of school to actually go and take them. But at the University of Birmingham, Steve Ellis and Valerie Eden at that time were hosting an evening postgraduate course, um, which is how I ended up studying Chaucer. And <laughs> okay. They're only, they're only details. So, as I say, not fully through choice, but then, of course, I became hugely enthusiastic about it and ended up actually lecturing, doing PhD and lecturing in medieval literature. Mm-hmm. And there I began with, I think, probably what is my abiding interest, which is bizarre, which is story. The thing I liked most and still like most about medieval literature in particular is the wealth and the diversity of stories, and in particular the different ways of telling um, so I began with female sex lives. That was my PhD thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, that book, I believe, still has a little bit of a following here in the US in particular. So I've done nothing with it since. And then I've come heavily through theoretical work. Yeah. Gender, women's studies, fem- French feminism, women's studies, uh, queer theory, some post-colonial. And by a long convoluted route, I've ended up basically where I started, medievalism, which is combining medieval contemporary popular culture. Mm -hmm. That's basically how I got here. Um, This book grew from a previous book which I'd co-edited with uh, Daniel Klein at the University of Anchorage in Alaska, Mm -hmm. which is a similar title, but which has the word popular instead in in it. 
I got very carried away with some of the essays in there, I must admit. Things that, you know, were very exciting to me, things which were yeah. new to me, all of it. And I remember thinking, you know, this really is my more natural home. Mm. There is nothing there is a, that, that I can find that is a survey of the field at present, which is an emergent field to an right. extent. Right. Certainly in the UK, that's basically how I got here to this particular collection. Proposed it alongside a Chaucer book, which I never actually wrote for Bloomsbury. In the oh, end. no. <laughs> <laughs> Chaucer in 21st century culture uh, was a similar kind of medievalism, and I, I, just, I got sidetracked on this one very much, so it really did consume my life, particularly mm. sort of web elements of it as well. Yes. Um, and as you know, there were 29 contributors in this book. It did kind of take over, but in a good way, in a good way. As you say, this is uh, something of a survey or an introduction to this emerging field. Can you talk about how you went about collecting pieces, contacting authors? Um, when you were thinking about proposing this book, how did you pitch it to yourself and then uh, to Bloomsbury? I pitched it very much as a contemporary book. I think I was fully aware right from the start that the majority of contributors here were not going to be from the UK. Mm. Um, there is an odd kind of... If I may say so, there is an odd kind of relationship with medieval, I think, sometimes in the UK that's quite unlike anything anywhere else in the world, in that it's very traditional. Um, certainly, as someone with a more divergent background, for instance, when I was, uh, certainly as a young lecturer, obviously faculty wanted me to teach Anglo-Saxon and medieval literature, they, they're things that most go, and I was unusual in coming from sort of one end of a specialisation right up to the other, and was fortunately always encouraged to sort of sort of do that and ride those two horses. But it's seen as a little bit more frivolous here in the UK. There's still much more emphasis on manuscript work and upon theoretical work. Mm -hmm. Everywhere else, I think, there's a lot of very emergent things. So over the years, of course, I've built up, as you do, through working with and talking to contacts with lots of scholars, lots of them in the US and Australia, um, and that was my starting point. I almost knew immediately who I was contacting, where I was going. And, of course, there are big names, big names in medievalism uh, in the field, notably three scholars, if I may say so, who unfortunately were not able to take part in this collection, Geoffrey Jerome Cohen, Stephanie Trigg in Australia, and uh, Kevin Harty, who are you know, working on big projects of their own. Um, oh, and Richard Utz, if I may say so too, um, all wanted to take part in this project at one point and obviously couldn't. And I then pulled in every contact I knew, <laughs> stuff that I didn't. Sometimes there were people I'd worked with before, you know, Bob Sturgis, Philippa Semper and Leslie Coote here in the UK, um, Elizabeth Emery uh, and so on. I, I can sort of pick out, but many, uh, you know, a number of people here were new to me um, and they came through conversations with other, and I will call them enthusiasts as well as experts in the field. Mm -hmm. um, the last chapter in this book um, about medieval memes yeah, Maggie Williams and Lauren Resort, um, they were from different fields. Mm. But there's no doubt that the majority of people here are, if you like, literary, uh, literature experts. Um, right. But I did, where possible, want to pull in people from other disciplines. And uh, Lauren and Maggie come from um, art and art history, respectively, and visual arts. Um, Sarah Peverly, who is a UK scholar, is, is a medieval scholar, but works primarily upon drama uh, and contemporary drama and, and, and media. So I was looking for a whole range of, of things. When it came to the topic, I was in a, <laughs> I was bored for choice. Um, you know, I'd say, do, do you then fancy, as you do, do you fancy joining in this book? You know, this is, this is the project. 
We want to focus upon afterlives that are contemporary. There's a lot in the, uh, in the field, obviously, and particularly, I think, in a fairly emergent field where you have to stake a claim for some kind of authority, yeah. which is a tendency a little bit to go back into the archives. There are other works that deal with that, and I wanted to deal with things that, um, if you like, medievalist texts in their broadest sense that had been produced and were being studied in the last 20 years maximum and preferably in the last 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much, you know, contemporary TV, film, video gaming and so on. Um, a number of contributors had several topics to, to present to me, so it was then a question of balance. You know, yeah. what I could and I couldn't cover. And the book grew, I have to say. We agreed with Bloomsbury have been magnificent on this book <laughs> because it's just grown exper- exponentially. Um, David Avital, my editor here, he's been absolutely fantastic when we were talking. And I said, you know, there's a fantastic topic on. Do you think we could just squeeze it in? Um, yeah. And, and, all, and the way it went. So I think we were looking originally at something like 20, 22 contributors. We ended up with 29. So when you're putting together this survey volume, uh, who are you thinking of as your intended audience? When you're in an emerging field and you want to present an introduction, are you thinking of um, are you thinking of students? Are you thinking of um, faculty peers? Who's the audience here, and or or who are the audiences? And how do you hope that this book will be received? Primarily, I think, um, particularly because at the end of the day, Bloomsbury is an emerging academic publisher. Your mm-hmm. audience is always academic, however much I, I might wish it otherwise. Um, And certainly, you're looking for some kind of peer accolade. You know, you're looking to, I won't say make a mark, but you're looking to make your own small contribution to the field. But also, I was very conscious that I would have hoped that students of medievalism would have this as a a resource, really, and a a jumping off point. As I say, most of the chapters of the survey, some of them are are more in-depth or or they were, you know, contributors were allowed free reign to an extent to sort of, offer a more nuanced, if you like, mm-hmm. than that. But primarily academics and students, which was one of the reasons why there was a particular bugbear of mine. I was particularly one of the... I'm not an insistent editor. You know, in some respects, I don't really enjoy the role of editing. I'm not heavy-handed and nitpicky, and it's not really my thing. But I do have lots of ideas, and I do think I'm good at getting people on board and, and staying with projects. But... I'm particularly always concerned about the accessibility of academic discourse. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's my educational background at the end of the day. The teacher in me wants to make these complex theoretical sort of ideas, you know, accessible to a range of, of people. And I had that very much in mind when I was thinking um, a student, for example, picking up a huge volume like this and dipping into it. Please, yes, let's have some challenging ideas, but let's write in a lively, readable style. And there's no doubt, too, I always hope and I had hoped with this volume that it might gain a broader readership. I'm assured by publishers that it never will, which is absolutely thrilling of them to tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) They say to me, oh, yes, we agree, and that's the way it should be, but we've never quite managed that crossover. And I think that's a pity. I think that's a question perhaps of marketing. I don't know really why that is, Um, but that's, that's always the difficult one. That, that's a difficult one to kind of balance. When you were addressing that idea with contributors and asking them for cl- clear and accessible prose, what kind of feedback did you get? What kind of discussions did you have with the authors of the various essays? Enthusiastic. Um, enthusiastic, um, sort of, I have to say, very much on the whole. I think unanimously so. Mm. Um, 
The introduction to this particular piece I struggled with long and long and hard for a while. I've long wanted to write a more, if you like, personal, accessible introduction to books and to, and in my own chapters too, in, in a different, if you like, more creative non-fiction style. Mm. And, and I decided, I decided actually before I started this, this volume that actually it would be my last ever academic work. You know, I'd had enough now and I wanted to focus on creative. So I could, I, I decided I could do what I liked really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the publishers could get upset with me or not. And, and if they were too upset, then they just wouldn't ask me again and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, but I was very um, taken aback really by the reception that that particular piece had um, with contributors who were then seeing it for the first time pre publication. Um, and it had obviously hit the spot of, I hope, a love for this field, a tremendous passion for it, a passion mm-hmm. for the texts in here, as well as, I would like to think too, some stimulating, stimulating and, and hopefully productive ideas about ways in which we might be teaching medieval ways forward, the kind of field, if you like, that we might wish to, to, to build. Mm-hmm. We shall see. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit more about yeah, what you actually put on the page there for the introduction and some of the concepts that you were uh, establishing as necessary to grapple with in the field. You talk a lot about uh, what is authentic, what is authoritative, and then you move to discussing uh, ideas about reimagining or reinventing the medieval or the Middle Ages. Can you kind of dive back into the way you lay out the negotiation with those ideas in the introduction for listeners? Yes, I, I, I began by thinking, and I, this, hence the introduction is called Living Medieval, what it was in some senses that, that brought me to medieval, the medieval field in the first place. I mean, I began with this interview by you know, saying I was accidental medievalist, I kind of stumbled upon it, and it was almost an expediency. And of course that's disingenuous. You know, I obviously had an interest in it to begin with. Mm. And it's an interest that I think many people have, with, and they're not scholars necessarily, you know. Right. Without necessarily fully articulating what it is. Perhaps it's, I don't know, something maybe to do with living in the UK. I don't know. As I say, wherever you go in the UK, you have Anglo-Saxon medieval place names. You've cast a falling over the things, you know. And if you're not interested in that, then that's fine because here, as in all around the world, and in the US in particular, you have medieval fairs, you have tournaments, you have reenactments mm-hmm. of, of events from history. Um, it's all through popular culture. Disney uses it. You're seeing it in film all the time. You're seeing it in TV, as I say, Game of Thrones. All this. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And for me as a child, I realized I was in the middle of it, except obviously as a child I didn't grasp that at all. Um, but these were the things that I was interested in. Medieval itself is a hugely difficult concept. You know, you talk medieval, what do you mean? It's, it's the temporality. Is it? Well, okay, it occupies three to four hundred years mm-hmm. of, of a timeline. And the events and the differences and the different cultures within that are massive. And then what are we talking about? A Eurocentric timeline, which, of course, completely ignores the fact that in Japan and China, there were medieval relics. They had a medieval culture of their own. Mm-hmm. That whole thing through medieval, which is the conflict, or is sometimes in, in literary text presented as a conflict between East and West. Ideas were being exchanged all the time. The Black Death, perhaps, is, is for me one of the greatest paradigms of it, that the whole idea of, of a disease that will ravage um, primarily Europe, but it's come along ancient 
um, eastern trading routes is come along the whole Silk Route and the trading route all the way passed along, and which shows in part the intersection. It will come to the it will come to the U.S. You know, did Columbus discover America? If so, when was it found? Before you know, all mm-hmm. all founding, if you like, kind of narratives um, are important. So you have that temporality, as I say, which is massive. Then you have those kind of relics that I talk about somewhere in the opening pages of this introduction mm-hmm. that I visited as a child, the abbeys that I went to, the impact that they had upon me, the strolling around, if you like, they were our they were our playscapes, which is a vast which was a vast Norman hunting forest in years gone by, and which is gradually obviously shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, those things that you don't realise. But I as well as all these artifacts that you have, which imply some kind of historical real, hence the issues of authenticity, I think, and authority that I move to, gr- to grapple with, if you like, or to raise. Mm-hmm. Have, <clears throat> no way they can be resolved, of course. But, you know, just want to, want to talk about those. Um, you have a historical real, but the relic that you're looking at may not be real at all. Mm. You know, Louise Darcin's chapter talks about Australian fake medieval relics. Yes. And where where these came from, why they were there. Um, Laurie Fink and Susan Aronstein talk about going to Tintagel in Cornwall, allegedly the birthplace of King Arthur. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. It's a lovely chapter. And there again, you have just um, what Carol Robinson, I think, beautifully describes in, in her piece on electronic uh, talking. You, you end up with a copy of a copy of an original. So as fast as you're looking at these historical things, as fast as you are visiting these you're looking at historical artifacts, you're looking at, you get, you do go into these places, you're imagining this huge timeline. All of it just, to me, falls into a black hole to an extent. So that medievalism, medieval, becomes more a liminal space. It becomes more point in time and space, a little bit like Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of revisit it and come back and it looks familiar, and yet it's not. It's hugely, it's a huge other that you sort of recognise but you don't mm. how do you approach this and these are the things that I think have probably exercised certainly me in my academic work and will exercise people forever you know all across that field and that's to my mind what evilisms is beginning to grapple with can you talk about as the contributions started to come in how you went about uh, categorizing them and dividing them because I, I should say the book is divided into five sections each organized around uh, almost a thematic center or, or a particular uh, term or concept that gives it a kind of unity can you talk a little bit about that process of structuring the book and how the, you were interacting with the contributions to, to put them in this shape I suspect, you know, to be frank, I wasn't interacting with the contributors and the contributions at all to begin with. I, I had in mind, I, I seem to recall, a fairly standard academic response, which is I wanted to look at the field. I wanted to look at the kinds of medievalist texts that were being produced within that field and, and, and their cultural markers and so on. So I was looking in, in fairly obvious ways. You know, film and TV were going to be one category. You know, stage and literary text, another, um, and, and, and so on as it went. But then I had, of course, people proposing topics that didn't directly immediately fit um, those ideas. Um, for instance, the Australian medievalism uh, from Louise Darcin that I talked about before. Well, what's that going to go? Um, ostensibly, it, yes, it seemingly fitted with the Tintagel essay that, again, I spoke about. But in another respect, it fitted with nowhere. Um, the medieval memes, 
okay, new media and fandom, that immediately came. But where was I going to put No Age in Neo-Pagan Medievalisms by Carolyn Kinney? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is that? Is that iconic, which is where it ended up? Is it a space between? Is it a reimagining and a reappropriation, which it certainly is? So I started off, as I say, with a fairly standard, if you like, chronology. And then I began to think about them a, a little bit more, partly playful, partly tongue-in-cheek, but also partly serious. I talk in the introduction, too, about my huge love for rock music, yes. which is yes. share with Elizabeth Emery. And so that's something I've discovered. <laughs> Instead of talking about our essays, we were talking about, <laughs> we were talking about rock music. So I looked at the cover of Avalon, which I've always loved, always drawn, um, and looked at some of the songs on there, hence their song titles. True to life in the performance looks as though it has an immediate connection. Um, and that's true. But what I didn't want to do at any point, and this is why it's hard, I think, to structure a book of this size, I didn't want to describe what I was doing. You know, if I did it again and the wind was blowing in a different direction and the moon pulling in another way, I'm sure it would be hugely different. As far as possible, too, I wanted chapters to rub up against each other. I want topics to Mm cross-fertilise, to produce a dissonance sometimes, or a kind of electric charge, rather than something that naturally segues into the next. This is interesting, actually, because I've recently read, and I shouldn't have done, a a review where the (laughs) wasn't very keen on the way (laughs) I'd structured this at all. And it's, it's it's an interesting point, because I think their starting point is perhaps very different from mine. For example, part two, to turn you on, the, the rock music song I call the pleasures of text, film, TV, and gaming. And this particular reviewer took exception to some of the instances there and things that I put elsewhere that should really, according to them, have gone into that particular category. Mm. Because to my mind, they were taking that fairly literally. To turn you on was exactly in an erotic way, in that sense. It is pleasurable and joyful. And it does make me laugh out loud to look at some of these texts. And I don't think we talk enough about pleasures of text. In academic discourse, there is no space to do that. I don't think we actually have a language to talk about it anymore if we ever did. Um, and yet it's what, it's what draws students to our courses. You know, they come because they've seen something on TV or on a film or on a video game. They think they know a little bit about medieval. I'm not criticizing them for that or, or commenting pejoratively in any way whatsoever. To me, that's brilliant, and that's certainly something that Marianne Poget talks about in her chapter, you know, utilising that enthusiasm, which at the same time, of course, includes a whole series of other different possibilities for medievalism. That's the challenge, because you could have just thrown everything together into one undistinguished yeah. list. Yeah. Um, but in order to direct readers' attention and in order to, as you say, ask these essays to be in productive conversation with each other, it can be helpful to provide, however you might say, artificial or uh, a structure that forces yeah, them into yeah. that kind of conversation. It is, and I think you're right. It is about conversations, and it says artificial. I mean, ironically, Dan and I, in the previous book, Palgrave, um, where we had, I think, a dozen or so essays, we didn't structure it in any way, and we're equally criticised in a review for not having <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, on that, on that basis, you, you, you're not going to please everybody, and I think I was fully aware of that. Mm-hmm. I think, too... Um, something that I I do mention in the introduction, which is that this book has no overarching thesis or pivotable means of organisation. Again, on reflection, I think I was entirely disingenuous in making that remark because it seems to me that someone who reads that introduction closely, 
who even if even if then they only dip into certain chapters in this book, see that what is driving the book forward is exactly what you've just said. It's it's conversation, it's dialogue. For me, these texts, these medievalist texts, I mean in the broadest sense, are always in productive, dissonant, divergent, sparky ways in conversation with a whole host of others, which is something which again I mentioned in the introduction, perhaps has a bearing on the ways in which we teach medievalisms mm. and the way we teach the medieval period. You know, rather than a strict, as we do now, okay, here are the texts, this is the period we're discussing, these are the texts we're going to look at, I make it up there. So I start to read with the class, the Galway and the Green Knight. Well, okay, which version am I going to use? Am I going to use some kind of original, authentic text in, in Middle English? Well, I would like to. But a lot of students, you know, are taking these period classes as, as part of a requisite as a degree. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to go on to be postgraduate scholars of medievalism. But nevertheless, I hope they're going to have a huge amount of fun and learn a great deal along the way by coming to these classes. And those who are going to go on, hopefully, this is my own view, we'll go back to Middle English. And I'm not going to say original, whatever that is. But, you know, so I pick up one, one version. Well, what then? Surely I should be looking at Simon Armitage's modern rendering translation of the Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm. Then what? Then I go back to medieval romance, and then we have different Gawains presented all the way through the Arthurian stories. Yeah. In romance, we've got the wedding of Dame Ragnall and Gawain, and on and on it goes. To my view, we need to be looking at all of those. If not in full, then in part, because they are part of the nexus of how we arrive at certain ideas that regularly recur. They are a nexus of conversations about culture. They are cultural markers. They're institutions of culture. We bring to bear so much on this work. You know, can't use it on our own. I hope, I truly hope that now Chaucer, even in schools, if he's ever studied at all in the UK, will not be, you know, will not be studied in isolation from patients like Bobby's telling tales. But what you're saying, what you're saying, really puts you on on one side of the debate about whether we should teach the canon or teach the controversies, whether yes. we should teach the canon or teach the conversations. And it sounds like you're very much saying we should teach the conversations. That's what I think. I do think so. I, you know, as I say, for whatever I say or however disingenuous I am about uh, about theory, and I feel like I've been there, done it, has a badge to, to wear it, mm. everything that we do and say has, if you like, not necessarily a, a diametrically opposed argument, but it intersects with something else. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as fast as as fast as I offer the ideas that I've just offered to you, there are a whole host of other scholars who will want to come back at me about that. And I, I, no one's right, no one's wrong. That you know, as you say, they're all conversations to be had, and they're all conversations that that, that bear in the telling, not just on the ways we teach, but also on the ways we produce and consume texts, not just medieval, all all of them. And as you say in the introduction, who better than a medievalist? to comment on that process of the production and consumption of texts because we have, at this point, a long history to look at the way that these texts have been produced and consumed and reinvented and reimagined. And so this is something that actually medievalists have to offer to the conversation is our particular history. Very much so. And I think also, it's, it, you know, it's changed, of course, hugely over the past 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. But there was a time when the Middle Ages, uh, well, medieval period was the Middle Ages. It was the Dark Ages. There was a time when medieval scholars were on the, if you like, a pre-modern divide. 
you know, there's a whole host of work sort of written about that. Scholars like Carolyn Dinshaw, of course, have hugely changed that perception. Mm. But there's very much a, a, a sort of medieval and Anglo-Saxon scholars did one thing. Everybody else from fi- uh, roughly 1500 did something else. Uh, medieval and Anglo-Saxon scholars way, way back um, allegedly didn't ever contend with theoretical concepts, but instead, you know, scrubbed around looking at manuscripts and, you know, counted up spellings and you know, <laughs> all, all this kind of thing. That, that was the kind of work they were doing, and it was vastly different. So you have this kind of idea of medievalism, well, of the medi- and, and the medieval period, and medievalists as of this pre-modern other. And as I say, the, the, a great deal of work obviously done to, to challenge those um, conceptions, and obviously in the last 25, 30 years, that, that, that's changed the field hugely. But I think that legacy carries over, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, to my view, medievalists and medieval, medieval people, medieval scholars and medieval students are perhaps better placed than, than many others to, to, to take some of these ideas and run with them. Those key motifs that we all recognize, and I, I do think we do, we all recognize in works all the way through all the usual, you know, the whole Arthurian characters that recur the whole sword in the, you know the usual stuff, the sword in the stone, the magic key, all of those symbols, those markers that we see all the way through now into fantasy and sci-fi. Students, particularly in, in the US, I think, signing up to, um, to courses because they've come across every single medieval character you could possibly think of somewhere whilst they've been gaming or they've seen it on Disney or what have you. And the, the ideas that they bring to the medieval that they are put into conversation, I think, and put into dialogue and a productive dialogue with the other kinds of, if you like, more academic medievalisms that we might understand and which we might want our students to appreciate, um, not least because they need to pass an exam at the end. The book began quite de- quite deliberately with Jeff Matthew and Brian Cogan, uh, just as it finished with Maggie Williams and Lauren Resor at the end. And two reasons, well, a, a reason for that in part was, to my mind, it brought us full length back on truly medievalist texts. Mm. In the sense of med- a medieval meme isn't a, I'm going to say, authentic text, in the sense that it hasn't come from the medieval period. Likewise, Spamalot with its Monty Python <laughs> yes. thing, most definitely didn't come from the medieval period. So that was, that was the first thing. It's where I wanted to kind of place again those chapters and this whole book deliberately in conversation with, as you say, questions of authenticity and, and, and so on, and authority. The language elements of it particularly interest me. And again, in the light of what I was talking about earlier, Whereas people listening to this are perhaps immediately inferring that I'm not someone who wants to get particular about making sure we read in the authentic, the original language. Mm. I would rather start the other way around, even though I do accept that many other people in my field think that that isn't, isn't the right way to do it. And, and indeed to hope that people will go on to read in the original is probably as false a hope as me imagining that this will have this book will have a huge broad readership. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, hey, I can I can hold on to my ideals. I think what I like about it is something that crops up again a little bit later in some other chapters, is the idea that actually, you know, somewhere along the line we recognise those cadences. Mm. We may not be able to translate word for word, if you like, but we hear the rhythms of it. We recognize them in our own speech. We recognize them in our own American Englishes. 
our English Englishes, our Welsh Englishes, all of those. We can hear all of those so that you begin eventually to tune in. So that on one hand you are othered, and in the next you are entering a strange, defamiliarized space. So mm. I, I, I like that. Well, and, yeah, and just the enormous popularity of medievalist texts and uh, medievalist culture and reimagining today is a testament to really how much there is to like. Um, Gail, thank you again so much for joining us on New Books and in Intellectual History and for discussing your work on this book, uh, Medieval Afterlives and Contemporary Culture. It's available now in hardcover from Bloomsbury Academic and it's coming in paperback in 2017. Again, uh, Gail, thanks for joining us and thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>